Amen, amen. All right, I'm going to try to throw a video up here and introduce you to a couple people. You may have seen these guys. See if we can get to work. All right, uh, these are videos of urban climbers. All right, maybe you've heard of this, but this is Vitali and Vadim, two really famous guys who have a million subscribers on YouTube. And what they do is they find buildings in big cities and they climb up them while they're still under construction. So we're talking 2,000 feet in the air, and they're going up there, and nobody knows it. And sometimes there's a crane on top, of course a selfie stick, right? And from here, I don't know if I can put them up, but they get some amazing photographs. And what they do is they make money by sharing these photographs. Uh, they go all over the world. These guys are from Russia. They go to China, Japan. They've been kicked out of China, but they still sneak in with their passport and do some phenomenal kind of homemade art. These guys weren't professional photographers until they started climbing, and now that's their livelihood. I saw that this week, and I thought, man, those are some amazing shots that those crazy dudes got as they were climbing all over these buildings. There's one. Okay, well, that's good. Uh, I bring that up because I was wondering, I was thinking this week, you know, when was the last time you saw something and you were just truly blown away? You saw it and you stuck and you said, man, hey, that's kind of amazing what's going on there. Maybe it was the birth of one of your children. You were just amazed when your child was born. Or maybe you took a trip to Colorado and you saw the Rockies. You're blown away. You were amazed. Or maybe you're a sports guy. Sergio at the Masters, right? Or Russ in the NBA playoff. Amazing to you. What's funny is what amazes us actually can reveal what's going on inside of us. What amazes us can tell us a lot about what we value who we are, and what our identity is. And as we approach the scriptures today, uh, we're going to be in Luke 7. Luke 7. And if you've been following along with us in our series about Luke, and maybe you've read ahead, uh, you realize that there's been a section of teaching, and now we come to Luke 7. And the whole point of the chapter is basically this. Luke is asking the question, who is this guy? Who is this guy, Jesus, right? And he's going to answer it by telling some stories about Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to look at today is try to get to the bottom of that question that Luke himself is asking in the scriptures. Who is this guy, Jesus? And we're going to ask a couple of questions to get at that, right? Our first one is going to be, what amazes Jesus? Because Luke wants us to know, and he wants you to know today, what does Jesus find Amazing. So that's going to be our first question. What amazes Jesus? And then secondly, what's amazing about Jesus? Right? That's what else we find in these two stories. What's amazing about Jesus? So let's just take a walk with Christ today as he's uh, walking through the ancient world, as he meets an officer and a widow. Let's just try to get to know him better by asking a couple of questions. First one. What amazes Jesus? Let's start in chapter 7 there, verse 1. You can read with me. Luke 7, verse 1. And after he finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. So let's get our bearings straight in the world of Jesus. We, we took a couple of weeks to talk about Easter. We're back in Luke now. Uh, Jesus, in uh, chapter 6, he gathered people on a plane 
and he performed what's now known as the Sermon on the Plain, just outside, perhaps west of the city of Capernaum. Uh, if you uh, if you remember what he was talking about in those great uh, sermons and teaching, he gave the golden rule. Uh, he talked about not judging others, turning the other cheek, giving. He talked about all of these things on the Sermon on the Plain. And now he's moving. He's done with that teaching. He's going east into the city of Capernaum. If you've got a Bible map in your head, I think I've got one I can put up here, um, maybe, that uh, shows you exactly where it is. If you're thinking of ancient Israel, the uh, you see two bodies of water. You have the Sea of Galilee, and you have the Dead Sea there. He's at the very top, the very northern portion of the Sea of Galilee there, and there's the city of Capernaum. I uh, don't see it on the map, but you can picture it in your head, hopefully, where he's traveling. Uh, and as he's going, he now comes into the city, and we're introduced to a central character in the story called a centurion, or an officer. And this guy held the approximate rank of a major in today's military uh, terms. He had about 100 guys in his unit that he commanded, and uh, he wasn't a Jew. We know he was a Gentile. And we're told in the story that a dear member of his staff, a servant, uh, was ill and in trouble. Matthew tells us in his account that the guy was actually paralyzed and on the brink of death. And that's how Jesus comes across this, uh, this, this centurion in the story. But he doesn't actually uh, meet Jesus face to face. Look at verse uh, 3 here. When the centurion hears about Jesus, he sent to Jesus elders of the Jews, asking Jesus to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, that's the elders, they pleaded with him, earnestly saying, he's worthy to have you do this for him. He loves our nation. Remember, he's not a Jew, he's a Gentile. He loves our nation, and he is the one who built for us our synagogue. So we see the officer now, the centurion, kind of swaying in the delicate dance that was Jew-Gentile relations. Remember, they had a certain way that they had to relate to one another in order to prevent uncleanliness. The Gentiles could uh, defile the Jewish people. So what the Gentile does when he hears Jesus is coming is he gathers up some Jewish elders and says, hey, would you go immediate? Would you go give a message to Jesus for us? Because going directly to Jesus might be dicey. He calls in a favor. He had uh, helped fund the building of the synagogue here in Capernaum. And so he calls in a favor and says, hey, remember when I did that to you? Now you do something for me. Go out there and talk to Jesus. Meet him and tell him that my servant is dying. Verse 6, Jesus is apparently intrigued because we read in verse 6 that Jesus went with them to see the centurion. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent some friends saying to Jesus, this is very interesting. As he's going to the house, the centurion's going to cut him off. He sent some friends out there, and the friends said, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this. And he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, Jesus said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such a faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house of the centurion, 
they found the servant well. So striking a posture here of utter humility, the centurion makes a bold move. After inviting Jesus to actually come to his house, he decides to cut him off at the pass, and he sends a message to Jesus saying, Stop! Don't come here. And it's at this point that Jesus, the scripture says, stands amazed. In the middle of this message from the Roman officer to Jesus himself, the Bible says Jesus was amazed. What's striking about that is all throughout the book of Luke that we've been studying, people stand amazed whenever Jesus shows up, right? Jesus shows up and something phenomenal happens. And people are blown away. He either wows with his teaching like he did in chapter 4. Or he astonishes people by casting out a demon. Later Jesus catches some fish where there are no fish. He empowers a paralyzed man to walk. In chapter 8, Luke is going to share how Christ will calm a storm. And also raise a child from the dead. There's no question that Jesus himself was a showstopper. right? But here in this text. It's an interesting question to ask. What amazes Jesus, right? He's this amazing guy, but what amazes him? What stops him in his track? What catches his breath? Something that the creator of the cosmos would stop and say, wow, that's phenomenal. You think maybe, well, does Jesus wonder at the shooting stars, right? Or does he stand in awe of the oceans? Or perhaps he sees the brilliance of Roman technology and he's amazed by it, or the might of Rome's greatest warrior. Or maybe it is a widow who's just given a mic. What is it that amazes Jesus? Well, what's interesting here is there's only two places in the entire scripture where we're told that Jesus is amazed. Only two places, and one of them in today's text. The other one is in Mark 6.6. 6. You don't have to turn there. I can tell you the story. Mark 6.6 6 is when Jesus was in his hometown of Nazareth, and he was sharing the gospel message. He grew up there, and he's like, hey, I got good news. Here is the righteousness of God, right? Here's the good news. His kingdom's come. And you remember what happened in that story? He got stiff-armed by all who heard it. They were offended, actually, that this man from Nazareth would say, I am God. I'm bringing in the kingdom. They took offense, and they failed to believe. And it was that unbelief that amazed Jesus in that previous story. He was blown away. At their lack of worship. Here in our text today. We see that he is amazed. At the belief of the centurion. It is the faith of this officer. The simple trust of a desperate man. Is what Jesus finds amazing. And what's at the essence of this faith. That impresses the king of kings. Well. It's a faith that confesses Jesus' clout, right? This guy confesses that Jesus has clout. He does it in one key way in the text. He basically says, I, I know you and I are both commanders, right? I've got guys in my unit, and if I tell them to go through the wall for me, they're going to do it. I don't even have to be there. I just need to send word, and these guys are going to do it. Because I'm a commander and I know what authority is. And he says, likewise you, Jesus, you also have authority over your realm, which includes all of creation, which includes the sickness of his servant. 
see how he confesses the clout of Christ? He does it by making this comparison about authority, right? And note here, like unlike most of Jesus' miracles, this one is long distance. That's what sets this one apart. He doesn't ever go to the house. It's like a cross-country boat of mercy and glory that Jesus sends across here. He's not there. Nothing is rubbed on the servant's eyes. You know, he doesn't call to him. He doesn't touch him. It's a long-distance miracle. And such was the authority of Jesus over all creation and sickness. He just needed to say the word, and peace would reign. And the centurion knew this. He saw it. He saw that Christ had phenomenal clout. So faith for the centurion, and this is key, faith for the centurion is to submit himself to the lordship of Christ. And at that point, Christ is amazed. You know, I've got a, at my house uh, a little puppy now. I uh, say he's little, but he's six months old, so he's get, getting bigger. He's a big dog. He's a big breed, so he's getting bigger. And I decide, you know, he's, the bigger he gets, the more unruly he's going to be unless I teach him some behaviors, right? Just the basic. I'm no dog trainer, but I think I can probably teach this pup to sit and to come and do the dishes, order pizza. But I can, I can teach him the basis, right? But in, in, in order for this to happen, there's going to have to be some trust involved. In other words, when I ask him to sit, he's going to have to trust that as soon as he does it, here comes the little piece of hot dog or the little piece of ham or whatever I'm using to reward him for his behavior. Whenever he lies down or, or plays dead, he is actually trusting that I'm going to come through in our little unspoken agreement. I'm going to reward him. I'm not going to leave him hanging. Right? He's not going to be alone. I'm going to get there. I'm going to be with him. And we don't often like to think about faith framed in the terms of submission. We're autonomous people. We don't like submission at all, most of us. But this is the essence of New Testament faith. It is trusting in such a way that your hands and your feet get busy submitting to the rule and the love of Jesus Christ. We find this all over the New Testament. Paul said, take captive every thought to make it what? Obedient to Christ, right? There's submission there. John said, this is love. This is what John said. This is love that we walk in obedience to his command. Hear that submissive type of language? Uh, Peter says, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had lived uh, when you had when you lived in ignorance. And of course, Jesus himself several times said things like this. You're my friends if you do what I command. You hear that? If you do what I command, then you're my friend. There's submission. That's how you express the trust that's inside of your heart. And beyond this even, submission is key. It's central to the gospel message. Different passages will show this. Think about in Romans 10, 1 through 4. Romans 10, Paul is teaching that the folly of all mankind is to seek to trust in your own righteousness. You stand before God and you say, I am righteous enough. Instead of submitting yourself to the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which means his obedience on your behalf. Look at what Paul says here. Here's Romans 10. Verse 1, he said, 
Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, he's talking about people who are out there that he wants to be saved, is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not what? They did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In their ignorance, people desire to stand on their own merit before God and present themselves as righteous instead of submitting to the New Testament notion that the only good we have before God that will stand up at Judgment Day is the righteousness of Jesus himself. Elisa Fitzpatrick says it this way. Uh, here's a quote. It's kind of long, but it's a really good quote. Talking about this passage, she says, these people are ignorant of the way of salvation, of the righteousness that comes from God. Is this ignorance just a lack of education? Or is there a moral component to it? It's not simply that they're ignorant, misguided seekers. No, in fact, their ignorance is willful. They're culpable because they have a desire for something other than the righteousness that comes from God, whom they say they're seeking to please. They desire to glory in their own righteousness. That's the opposite of submission in the gospel, glorying in your own righteousness. So they aren't willing to submit to the righteousness of of Jesus. Then, very revealing, she goes on to say this. Isn't that the difficulty with true Christianity? It forces all of us, women and men, to subordinate ourselves, to bow low beneath the truth that if we want to be righteous, we must give up all of our efforts at righteousness and submit to His. And then she opens up and she says, I ought to rejoice that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, but I'm not sure that I always do. You relate to that? Yes, of course, when I'm in my right mind, I exult in the truth embodying those words. But there are other times, and far too frequently, when I find myself relying on my obedience to the law so that I can assure my own heart and beg to squirm out from under the total submission Christ has demanded of me. You mean I can't rely on myself at all, really? Can I just craft a little something to hang on to when I start to doubt whether grace is enough? This feeling of free-falling into someone else's mercy. That's what submission is. Free-falling into someone else's mercy and righteousness is really quite unnerving. Sometimes grace just gives me the shivers. And the only way to salvation, it's illustrated beautifully in this story, is to submit your heart to the truth that you cannot save yourself. Only Jesus can. And we see the centurion doing that. He knows he cannot save his servant. He is submitting himself to Christ and Christ alone. This is why Jesus is amazed at the centurion. He understands this guy, this officer, understands that faith means humble dying to self and submitting all parts of yourself to Jesus. And so my prayer today is that we would get that, that we would leave here with happy submission to Jesus in his commands, but also in the gospel, that we would happily look to him in our prayers and say, my righteousness, my moral goodness falls way too short. I submit to this truth that only your righteousness will save me, O oh God.
And that's what amazes Jesus. But what about this? What's amazing about Jesus? We talked about how true, submissive faith amazes Christ. But what's amazing about Jesus? Well, there's, of course, millions of things. But we're only going to look at two or three here in the text. And it's important to understand as we're reading the Gospels together, kind of how they work. Many of these stories about Jesus and his life are actually teaching us what's going to happen at the cross of Christ, right? It's, it's like a trailer for a movie that builds anticipation for the premiere that's coming up. I see you Last Jedi fans out there, right? The trailer's out now. It's building anticipation for the movie that's coming. That's the way the Gospels are working. They're building up excitement for the cross, which perfectly shows some of these aspects of Jesus' glory, what's amazing about him. The cross will show us uh, a little more clearly. So what I want to do is look at the story, some things that are amazing about Jesus in the story, and also broaden them out to how they relate to Jesus and his death and his resurrection. So first off, the inclusiveness of Christ is amazing. The inclusiveness of Jesus Christ is amazing. What do I mean by that, inclusiveness? In fact, aren't Christians often criticized for being exclusive, right? And a little too narrow by outsiders, a little too intolerant? What do you mean by saying Jesus is inclusive here? Well, what I don't want you to miss within this story is that we see illustrated how Jesus is uniting all ethnicities in himself. He is bringing all races, all ethnicities to himself. Don't forget, the officer here in the story who's showing great faith and coming to Jesus is not a Jew. He's not one of God's original chosen people. And yet, he's coming, he's being drawn to our great God in Christ. And that's okay, right? Because uh, even though this Gentile wasn't a part of the Jewish faith, because of what Jesus did on the cross, he has opened up the gate so that all races may come to him. Remember, Paul talks about this in Ephesians 2. He talks about it like a wall being broken down. He says in verse 14, Paul does, For he himself, Jesus, is our peace. And that's peace between man and God, but also peace between all races who come to Jesus inside himself. He is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility through him. We both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Since the benefits of Christ's death are access through faith, like the faith shown by the centurion, we all come together and in Jesus. And we want you to know here, as we're doing life at TCC, we talk a lot about pursuing ethnic harmony and we structure things. We want you to know that we're not doing that on just a whim. We see it in the scriptures and we delight in it. Not just doing it because it's hip and other secular people are doing it right now. We're doing it because we feel driven and compelled by the biblical message. Texts like this and, and many others open up the shades and reveal to us God's heart 
is for all races to come together in him. This illustrates on a micro scale that Jesus is Lord of all humanity, of all races. It's like I read an article this week. Uh, it was some business article, and there's a group called Interbrand, and what they do is they figure out each year who has the best business brand, right? And they list the top 100 brands every year, and they rank them. And I saw the list from last year. What do you think? The top five global business brands. Anybody have any guesses? Top five? Hey, there are no wrong answers here, right? <laughs> Actually, there are. <laughs> here's, to, here's the top five. Toyota, Microsoft, Coke, Google, Apple. Sorry, all you Apple haters, but Apple got first in their survey. But when you, when you think about it, what does that speak about Google, about Apple? It means something so valuable about their brand, right, that no matter what culture, no matter what race, no matter what ethnicity you are, you can go to Turkey, you can go to Japan, you can go to China, you can go to Africa, and people are flocking to Google and Apple. It illustrates the greatness of their product, and that's, that's one of the points. When we see all ethnicities coming together in Jesus, it illustrates how beautiful, how compelling, how glorious he is to attract all of these races to himself. So I pray that you, on your own, personally and corporately here with all of us, will make some strides towards ethnic inclusivity. Just make that a part of your regular walk. And again, there are numerous ways to do that. And instead of giving you a bunch of examples on how to do it, because many of you are already doing it, whether I want to... Just repeat one encouragement that I received this week. So if you're here and you're striving for ethnic inclusivity through the gospel, maybe it's you're, you're an adoption person and you're into uh, the inclusivity that's shown there. No matter what you are, here's an encouragement that I read. Uh, one author writes this. He said, whatever you, whatever strategy you try, you're going to be criticized by somebody. Either when you're pursuing ethnic harmony, you, did, you didn't say the right thing, or you didn't say it in the right way, or you should have said it a long time ago, or you shouldn't have said anything. But get off your backside and you should be doing something. Or just when you think you've made your best effort or to do some healing, someone will point out the flaw in what you're doing. And when you try to talk about doing better, there are a few things more maddening to be told, hey, you just don't get it. Oh, how our back gets up and we feel the power of self-pity begin to rise in our hearts and we just want to say, oh, okay, I've tried this ethnic harmony thing. I've done my best. See you later. And there ends our foray into racial harmony. If you've ever tried this mixing, blending of cultures, it's hard, right? But my message today for you, my encouragement is don't quit. It may not get easier, but don't Quit. Why? Because the power of Christ within you is sufficient to pick you back off the mat, get you back in the game, and even allow you to flourish time and time again. Do not quit at whatever you're doing because the power of Christ in you can go beyond your preferences, can overcome your self-pity, 
your annoyances. You just have to trust that he can win the small, subtle victories that involve pursuing intentional ethnic harmony. Trust that in looking back how he healed the centurion's servant. Trust that in looking at the cross, he brought all races together. And trust forward looking to heaven where we will all be a part of this swarm of all different peoples and cultures and races coming together and worshiping him. My call is to trust and don't quit no matter what comes in your face. Secondly, not only is it the inclusiveness of Christ that's amazing, but also I want to point out the compassion of Christ. The compassion of Jesus Christ is amazing. One author defines compassion like this. To have compassion is to be moved to your core. It literally means your insides churn for the sake of someone else. It's just concern for the other and for their benefit. That's what I mean when I say compassion. And to see this, we have to read a little bit further here uh, in the story. So let's continue our walk with Christ down to verse 11 in Luke 7. Now he's going south from Capernaum to this tiny little village of Nain. The village is still there, by the way. It has a couple hundred people there living now. Today it's an Arab village today, but back then it was not. Verse 11. Soon afterwards, Jesus went down to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. Verse 12. As they drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. A considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said to her simply, Do not weep. And then he came up and he touched the buyer, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother, and fear seized everybody. And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all of the surrounding country. So now we see Jesus as he's walking into the city. A funeral procession is coming out as he is going in. And there he meets a dead son, a grieving widow, and the situation, the tragedy is compounded because in that culture, if you're a widow and you don't have any other caregivers, you're what we call an orphan widow. She cannot support herself. So she's hopeless. And unlike the previous story, when Jesus is summoned, notice that Jesus takes the initiative. When it comes to compassion, we must take the initiative. If you're in the buffet line and you see a mother of four balancing three plates, you need to dive right in there and grab a plate. You don't wait for someone to ask when it comes to compassion. That's how it works, and that's what we see Jesus doing here. He approaches what would have been men carrying a plank of wood. In that society, if you dive, they would wrap you up almost like a mummy. Instead of putting you in a coffin, they would put you on a plank, and uh, you can't take it because it's ceremonial. You can't touch it because it's ceremoniously unclean. But they're going outside of the city to bury this guy pretty, pretty soon after he's died. And Jesus walks up. And he doesn't make a speech. You might expect, knowing what he's going to do, he might stop and preach a while. But he doesn't do that. He says a brief word to 
to the mother, and then he addresses the dead person directly. Think about how strange yet marvelous that would be to see Christ stop the procession. A stranger walks into town. He hold up, stops it all, and then he begins speaking to the dead boy. Amazing. What he begins to talk about is simply how life will reign. Where death once triumphed, life now sits up and begins to speak because the Word of God Himself has showed up. Jesus, in His amazing compassion, heals the boy. And this, too, relates forward to the cross of Christ. Don't miss the connection between the compassion He shows in this wonderful story and the compassion we see in the death and resurrection of Jesus. One uh, author, April Fayette, writes this about this connection. She says, The ministry of Jesus, from his humble birth to his death on the cross, was defined by compassion. She says, The word compassion can mean to suffer with or to suffer together. Jesus suffered for us, and he suffered with us. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases. And, and nowhere do we see Jesus' ministry of compassion more clearly than on the cross where he was willing to suffer with us even to the point of death. He was willing to enter into all of our suffering from the pain of birth to the longings of hunger to the throes of grief to the final gasp which leads to death. Earlier in the canon we we see the prophet Isaiah looking forward to the death of Jesus Christ and how God served his people. And he said, sing for joy, O heavens, and exult. O earth, break forth. O mountains, jump into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. That's from Isaiah 49, 13. And note specifically in the Isaiah passage, a connection between our joy and God's compassion. The secret of our joy and our rejoicing is buried deep within the fertile soil of God's compassion. I don't know if you ever failed to get compassion when you knew you needed it. You ever have that experience? I know I have. Uh, last night, even at my home, uh, I'm sitting there with my family. And really to understand the story, you need, I need to back up and say, uh, I cut my teeth when I was younger on really well-done physical comedies, right? Like, I watched Chris Farley, I watched Three Stooges, and I just thought, man, physical comedy's great, I love to see that. Now, fast forward to my house last night, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm in the dining room with my family, and we're, we're playing a game there um, Saturday night, and uh, two days ago, one of my blessed children, love him to death, uh, had uh, stubbed his toe just running through the house. And it was one of those stubbed toes that just makes you cringe because it gets all bloated and purple and it bleeds a little bit. It's just nasty. And so he spent the last two days, uh, you know, on one good foot. And he just kind of slides around everywhere he goes. Well, he was doing that from my dining room to my kitchen. And he's sliding, you know, dragging bad toe, dragging bad toe. And he's just not being quite aware, he drags, and good toe goes, bam! <laughs> and he stubs his only other good working toe. 
And in that moment, <laughs> trust me, it was perfect comedic pitch. <laughs> and I just went, Pwah! you know, I just, I just let it out because just the thought of, of that was funny. And he wasn't hurt. I'm not that big of a jerk. He wasn't crying. He was just, a, but it looked, it looked like, oh my word, the, you know, sometimes they just look awful. And you know what? Rightly so. I got several stink eye looks from people in the room, right? I, I deserve that. I should have had compassion. And there are many times you might feel that way, but not in Jesus, right? The opposite is true in Jesus Christ. He possesses amazing compassion that should fill you up with delight as you meditate on his intense love shown at the cross. He found you drowsy and dull from overexposure to sin, to Satan and this fallen world, and he compassionately covered you with a shock blanket of righteousness. That is Jesus Christ and his compassion shown at the cross. Finally, one more thing about that's amazing about Jesus here. One more thing. I just want to call it the sheer power of Christ is amazing. Maybe you're one of those people, you're like, I like power. Mm. You like monster trucks, or you like the waves crashing at the ocean. You're just a, mm, I'm drawn to power. The sheer power of Christ is amazing. And you know, perhaps because we're reading about him in a book, we can read over these texts and not just stay there and realize what an incredible thing he's done. And there's, I know there's 2,000 years difference, so culture is different, but I think we oftentimes miss the power. But let me assure you, you have never seen anything close to the rivaling the power of Jesus Christ. It's one thing to drop bombs in Afghanistan that can take lives. It's quite another to bring them back. And that is the power of Jesus Christ. Here in these two stories, he just speaks away paralysis from a distance. And then he stares death in the eyes and erases every mother's greatest fear. Sheer power of Christ is impressive. And that's merely a glimpse of the power that we see unleashed at the cross. You know, the author of Hebrews writes that at Calvary, Jesus died so that through death, Jesus might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is, the devil. That's Hebrews 2. Verse 1. So one powerful thing about the death of Jesus is that it destroys Satan or it renders Satan powerless. Now, how does this work? In what sense is Jesus destroying Satan by his death? Well, we, we understand that Satan's not completely powerless, right? We know he's still active today. But think about it. If you, if you ran across me in the uh, ice cream store, we were out and you saw me at Goodberry or someplace like that. And you heard, you were watching me, and you saw my, my little girl come up. She smiled a really cute Chinese smile at me. And you heard me say, oh, I am powerless. You would know what I was talking about, right? I, I wasn't saying, I can't walk anymore, I can't talk anymore. I would be saying, I can no longer resist buying her a lot of ice cream, right? My purpose of saving money just went out the door. I am powerless here. And that's kind of the notion here. When we hear that Satan was destroyed, he can still do some things, but his singular purpose 
of deceiving God's people into being shackled with the fear of death, that has been destroyed. You can trust that at the cross, Jesus rendered Satan powerless. The next verse in Hebrews helps us to understand. It says that Christ came and died to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Right? Satan's purpose is to make you enslaved to the fear of death. Here's how one author wrote it. He says this. He says, sin was the ground of Satan's dominion. Two, sin was the sphere of his power. And three, sin was the secret of his strength. And no sooner was the guilt lying on us extinguished by Jesus' death than Satan's throne was undermined. When the guilt of sin was abolished, Satan's dominion over God's people was ended. For the ground of his authority was the law which he had been violated and the guilt which had been incurred. In other words, Satan's power is based on sin and guilt. Christ's death meant that the ultimate sin was killed. Guilt died. Death itself was vanquished. And thus Satan was ultimately defamed by Christ's atoning work at his cross. And of course, following Good Friday was Easter Sunday where Christ's cross work is also fulfilled. Sam Albury writes this quote. He says, the resurrection is the outworking and proof of our salvation because death is the outworking and proof of our sin. Jesus' new life shows us the cycle of sin and death has finally been broken. There is new life to be had. Sin has been conquered. I love this. I know I told some of you guys that uh, last month in March, uh, it was both my joy and my sorrow to preach at my grandmother's funeral. Dear grandmother, I passed away. She had a long, wonderful life. She was a believer, old uh, mountain saint made of some hearty stuff, spicy, spunky woman, loved the Lord. I went home to do her funeral, and uh, maybe you don't know this, but some, some traditions are a lot more formal than we are, and uh, her for- Funeral wasn't crazy formal, but it was kind of old-fashioned in a southern sort of way. And so as the preacher, they wanted to escort me up to the front of the stage. Uh, we don't do that here, but they had uh, you know ushers that walked me up at that before I was going to preach, before the service started, and they just kind of led me to the special preacher chair, right? And so I was over here at the preacher chair, which was fine. You know, I'm used to it. Uh, you stand here or you sit here during the entire musical uh uh, performances or the testimonies or what have you that go along with the funeral. And so I was, I was doing that. What I hadn't prepared for, though, I prepared for kind of the awkward formality. What I hadn't prepared for is that there was a mix-up between my family and the music guy. The music guy did a fantastic job, but he didn't get the right songs. And so he did all that he could do. He had to make a change in the music on the fly, and he went from him singing, got it, to congregational singing. But you might think, hey, well, that's a nice thing. So he said, I'm going to pray a hymn that you all know. But what he began to do is said, come on, everybody stand up. And so, you know, I stand up, I'm over here. And uh, he says, let's all sing. And then he named a hymn that I know was popular in the 50s about going far away into the promised land. And everybody knew it there but me, right? 
So I'm in a situation, I'm standing up basically right here, and everybody's kind of singing to me, and I don't know the words to the song. <laughs> so what do you do? Of course you sing watermelon, right? <laughs> and you know, I'm, just, I'm just basically lip-dubbing and faking it, and it turned out to be kind of a total fail of me up there being like, oh, and it was awkward. But I tell you what wasn't the fail. Later, I was able to step to the pulpit and promise, guarantee every single member who has showed up for my nanny's funeral that Jesus has victory over this. He has victory over death. He killed it on the cross. His resurrection guarantees that Satan has been vanquished. What you see here is not reality. Yes, it's my nanny's body, but her soul is gone and her soul is living and this body will one day live too. The victory over death in Christ is absolutely amazing. Amazing. And that's what this text wants you to dwell on as you walk out of here today. Think about the amazing compassion of Christ. How he includes all races and how his power has Victory over death. Let's pray together. God, I do pray. I do pray that you would remind us of the glories of Jesus. Come to us now with comfort and compassion and a clarity about what you accomplished at the cross in Jesus for our sake. Let Luke 7 spring us forward to the great reality that we will live forever and let Christ be supremely magnified as we dwell on these thoughts.